Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Almighty Father, on this night as we gather, fill our hearts with true faith, hope, and love. May we, like St. John, whose gospel we meditate upon this evening, hang on every word of our Lord. For he and he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. Bless us that all that we hear and celebrate this night we may bring to the ends of the earth. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. St. Ambrose. Thank you, Father Fisher. Please welcome back Dr. Timothy O'Donnell. Thank you. Good evening, everybody. It's good, it's good to see you all again. It's great to be back here. It's always great to be part of the Institute and especially to be here at St. Ambrose. Well, let's jump right into things. Again, I always love to, uh, we have a blessing of the overall gathering, but to focus ourselves specifically on Scripture, let's ask for the light of the Holy Spirit as well. Did you notice the readings at Mass this week? Yeah. yeah was that really cool or what? It was a God incident. In the name of the Father, Son, of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who did instruct the hearts of thy light of the Holy Spirit, grant us by the same spirit to have a right judgment in all things, and ever to rejoice in his consolation through Christ our Lord. Amen. St. John the Evangelist. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay. Last week, you might remember we did the prologue, which was a summary of the whole gospel. Do you remember that? Okay, because we're going to be referring back to that periodically in the next uh, two evenings that we're going to be together. We also did the wedding feast at Cana. Do you remember that? The six stone water jars, which are no longer going to be able to use for purification, right? Because that whole Jewish tradition has been replaced by something that will be quite a bit better, right? All right? No one has any one time seen God. Moses didn't see God. But the son didn't see God because he was in the bosom of the father. So we're going to pick up right where we left off. The last thing we had was after the great miracle, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and disciples, and they stayed there but a few days. 20-mile walk from Cana to Capernaum. So it's 20 miles. Capernaum is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, we didn't know exactly where it was. It was only discovered recently in this century. And uh, they found all sorts of interesting things, including the synagogue, where Jesus gave the bread of life discourse that we're going to talk about. But one other thing that I found fascinating, they actually found what they believe is the house of Peter, where Jesus stayed. I don't know if you heard about it. How many of you have been to the Holy Land? You might know what I'm talking about, where they have that sort of glass floor. They found one room in this house that was completely lined with gold mosaics. 
And they said that was the room of the Lord. That's where he stayed when he was at Peter's house. And that was identified as such by the early Christians. So let's start. Uh, we go back to Capernaum, but then immediately, unlike the synoptics, which spend most of their time in Galilee, and Jesus only makes it to Jerusalem when? Palm Sunday, at the very end, the culmination of his ministry. That's why I have to read all four of the Gospels, because John tells us that Jesus went there several times. He went there several times, not just at the end. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke knew that, but they wanted to have that movement and the dramatic formal entry where he proclaims himself as Messiah. John tells us that he was at Jerusalem at other times. So right away, if you look at chapter 2, that's where we are, verse 13, we are told, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. I love how when you take the Gospels and put them together, you get a great little insight. Remember, Luke tells us that Jesus, Mary, and Joseph used to do what every year? Go to Jerusalem for the Passover. So even though he's a man, the city is filled with golden memories of being with his mom and dad and celebrating that joyous festival, right? Is it any wonder when he stands on the Mount of Olives, getting ready, and he's looking at the city, that city is filled with all sorts of wonderful memories, and that's why he weeps. If only you knew the time of your visitation. I would have gathered you as a mother hen gathers his chicks, her chicks, but you would not have it so. Very, very sad. Love Jerusalem. So he goes up. The Passover is there. Now, Passover is really big at Jerusalem. Josephus tells us that you would have 2,500,000 pilgrims flock into Jerusalem. Every Jew within 15 miles of Jerusalem was obliged to go to the Passover. 2,500,000. Can you imagine how many lambs would be slaughtered? I like lamb, but I mean, I'm just saying it was a religion of blood. That's why when you read things, we're not going to get to the book of glory in this session at all. But when he leaves, you know, after celebrating the Last Supper and goes down and crosses the brook of Kedron. Remember that? That's where they would pour the blood from the sacrifice. And it's Passover, so it's a full moon. So what do you see in the water reflected as you cross the bridge? Blood and water, right? Blood and water. Blood and water. All right. What a poignant moment that is. Now, here he is in Jerusalem, the city. And he found in the temple men selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and money changers at their tables, and making a kind of whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple, also the sheep and the oxen. Now, everything he's saying here, John, is, is accurate. It's historical, and it is deliberate. He drives the money changers, and including the sheep, the oxen, he poured out the money of the changers, overturned the tables, and to them who were selling doves, he said. Notice a little difference? He's overturning one, driving out. When it comes to the doves, I just thought that was interesting. Because when they would go to the temple as a little boy, what would they offer? Doves. That's for the poor people. That's for the Anoim. He says, take them out. Take them out. And do not make the house of my father. We've read this. We're sort of jaded by it. 
But let's imagine the thunder of those words. Don't make the house of my father. Because who is he? He's the son. Okay. We read that. We just pass over that quickly. The house, the temple, it's Yahweh. That's the house of my father. He's making a great claim here. A house of business. And the disciples remembered that it is written, and it's a quote from Psalm 68 or Psalm 69, if you have the new numbering, verse 10. The zeal for thy house is eat me up. And that song, all the rabbis knew, was a messianic psalm, speaking of the Messiah. So this is clearly a messianic act that is going on here, right at the beginning, right in Jerusalem. And then it goes on. The Jews therefore answered and said to him, What sign dost thou show us, seeing that thou dost these things? Now the Jews are the official group who are in charge there because they recognize as he's driving everything out that he's making a claim. That's why I say, what's the sign? They know that he's claiming to be the Messiah because in the Messianic times there was to be no commerce in the temple. No commerce whatsoever. All the nations were supposed to stream at the Messianic times. And what he is doing right now in cleansing the temple is making a great Messianic claim. And remember, this happens at the beginning of the ministry. And all of those animals that are sold for the sacrifice and all the money changing that is going on, you know who controls all of that? Caiaphas, high priest. It's his family. He controls all of that. And you wonder where the animosity comes from? Do you think he probably had to clear the temple more than one time? Yeah, it's not a contradiction. He does it at the beginning of John. Then also when he comes in at the end, he's going to have to do it again. They're not going to say, oh, yes, of course, carpenter's son from Nazareth. Clear it all out. That's just fine with us. We won't come back. But we have to realize everything that's going on here and how significant it is and why he's so angry. The money changers. What's the problem with the money changers? The only thing that we will accept is the shekel. Not a denarius. It can't be any other kind of foreign money. Only the shekel. And so in order to get the shekel, you have to trade a lot of money in. And guess what they're charging? It's the equivalent of a full day's wage for a labor, for a working man just to get the proper coin to give the tribute so that you could buy the sacrifice in a clean way. So they're making a fortune. They're making a fortune. All sorts of money taking advantage. Now, it's also interesting to note, can we use the blackboard? Is that okay? All right. (laughs) It's a whiteboard, sorry. Anyway, (laughs) blackboard with, you know, now the boards are white and the stuff's black. Anyway, okay, so anyway, just to give you a little sense. Now, this is just a rough symbol of what, say like this is the temple, Okay, there were a whole series of courtyards around the temple. Okay, and that's a very rough sketch. But here is the temple itself. This is the Holy of Holies right there. And you had the altar of incense where everything would be burned. The altar of sacrifice with a bloodletting. Big 15-foot altar out here. Magnificent temple built by Herod the Great. We should talk a little bit about that too. I'm all over the place, but you know, it's great. Herod the Great. David couldn't build the temple. Why? Because he was a man of blood. It had to be someone of peace. Who built this temple? Herod. No, no. This temple was built by Herod the Great. Talk about a man of blood. Temple won't last too long. 70 AD. We'll talk about that shortly. All right. So you have all of these different courtyards. Here is the courtyard of the priest. 
This is the courtyard of the Israelites, the righteous ones. Then out here you have the courtyard of the women. This is where the women would gather to pray. And then the very last courtyard, you know who that was reserved for? The Gentiles. The Gentiles. The oxen, the sheep, the money changers, the manure, the bleeding, the urine, everything else that's making a complete mess. It's all out here with the Gentiles. Does that make sense? If you were attracted to the Hebrew God, you came to believe that there's only one God, but you weren't Jewish, that's the only place you could go. It was noisy, it was dirty, and you were getting ripped off. Jesus sees that. See, now he's coming for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but he's coming for all men. So when he says this, he sees they are shutting out his father and his house, and it fills them with zeal, and he says, take this out. This is a place of prayer. Nobody could pray in this environment. And that's why they stuck it all out there. And now another thing we want to remember, what's going on here. It's very interesting. Zeal for the house. What sign dost thou show us? We're going to come to the sign in a minute. But of course, he's driving out the oxen. He's driving out the sheep. Everything. Do you need to have those animals in the Old Testament dispensation? Absolutely. So when he's driving all those animals out, saying, get them out of here, take them away, what is he saying is no longer necessary? And the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. Remember that in the prologue? Word became flesh, pitched his tent among us. And his tent is his flesh. There's a new divine presence. And that's when they say, show us a sign. They recognize the claim. He's claiming to be the Messiah by what he's doing. Commerce not tolerated. And he's saying something else. This is no longer going to be necessary. So what sign dost thou show us us? Take a look at verse 19. In answer, Jesus, which means, of course, Yahweh saves, Jesus said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Meaning you destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. The Jews therefore said, Forty-six years has this temple been in building, and wilt thou raise it up in three days? That would make this around 28 AD, according to that number. That's when this is happening. And so they're talking about Herod's temple and how long it's been built. And it was a magnificent structure. There was an expression among the Jews at that time that he who has not seen Herod's temple has never seen anything beautiful. It was exquisitely beautiful. Even when the Romans came, Titus did not want to destroy it. It was so beautiful. Did not want to destroy it. And so the evangelist, St. John then tells us, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. Because this temple, which was the glory of the old covenant, is no longer going to be the place where God is. Where is God? In Jesus his body is going to become the new temple. That will become the new temple. You destroy this, and in three days I'll raise it up. Now, we know this was historically said at this time, and one of the reasons we know this is because the synoptics, especially to Matthew's gospel, when they bring witnesses at Jesus' trial to try to accuse him, what do they say he claimed? He said he was going to destroy this temple. So the synoptics bear witness to what John is telling as well. 
which is an important collaboration for the historicity of this passage. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. When he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Does that make sense to everybody? So just, this is an ongoing pattern now of what we're going to see. You know what happened to the stone jars? They were replaced. It was a Jewish ritual, Jewish tradition that was replaced by something that was going to be new and better. Now we have another great Jewish center of tradition, the temple. That's going to be replaced. But it will be replaced by something far greater. God now dwells in Jesus. Jesus' body is the center of God's activity with mankind. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay, let's creep on a little bit then. If we could go to chapter 3. We're making real progress, don't you think? Yeah. Uh, two down, 21. All right, well, we do. <laughs> All we have to do really do is the book of Psalms. We get to 13, we're great. So let's see how far we go. Now we continue on with the same type of theme. Keep thinking along with me. Now, there was a certain man among the Pharisees, Nicodemus by name, a ruler of the Jews. The Greek word is archon. Now, to say he was a ruler of the Jews means he was a member of the Sanhedrin. So this Nicodemus, he's a Pharisee. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. You don't get any more Jewish than that. So he is a Jew among the Jews, ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus at night. Now it's interesting. He comes at night because night is dark. And when you're in the darkness, what shines? All right. He's coming towards the light. Right? Him, him was the light and the light was the light of men. Keep going back to the prologue. Everything in the prologue is constantly being referred to here as we go through the gospel. So it's night. Now, the rabbis always taught best time to study nighttime because there's no distractions. But it's also the time of darkness. There is no light, evil. And so in a very real sense, he is in the dark and he's approaching the light. Now, notice what he calls him, rabbi. That's the way the other disciples started, right? Remember with Andrew, rabbi, you remember from last week? Okay, rabbi. Now notice what he says. We know that thou hast come a teacher from God, for no one can work these signs that thou workest unless God be with him. Who's the we when he says we know? Sanhedrin. John isn't telling you everything he did. Did Jesus work other signs in Jerusalem other than clearing the temple? Yeah. So they're all of these signs, so they've obviously discussed it. They don't know what to do with them. But Nicodemus, out of his mouth, reveals where their head is really at. We know <laughs> that thou hast come a teacher from God. That's sort of Johannine irony. Is he a teacher? Has he really come from God? <laughs> yeah, he has come from God. <laughs> he is God. All right? you see, I mean, he's processed from the Father. He's not even aware of fully what he's saying. But he does recognize, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can work these signs that thou workest unless God be with him. Emmanuel, God with us. Remember that in Matthew? All right. He kept bringing those synoptics in. There's no contradiction. It all ties in together. Jesus answered and said to him, Amen, amen, I say to thee. 
Unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is a ruler. He's a Pharisee. What does he want to see more than anything in the world? The kingdom of God. Because when the kingdom of God comes, who's here? The Messiah, all right? The Messiah. That's what he wants to see. Jesus knows that. That's why he's coming. He's attracted. He already knows that Jesus is from God. So now, since he's had the courage to approach him, even though it's nighttime, Jesus is going to start taking him more deeply into the mystery of who he is. So unless a man be born again, the Greek word is anophen. It means again, but it also means born from above. It has a double meaning, again and from above. Unless you're born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus takes this literally. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus answered, give him a little more revelation, a little more light, because where is he? He's in darkness. So we need a little more light to shine. So Jesus says, amen, amen, I say to thee, Unless a man be born again of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Remember the prologue? Those who are not born of flesh nor of the will of man, but those who are born of God. Remember that? And then John the Baptist is saying, someone's coming after me, strap I'm not worthy to unfasten, and he will baptize you with water and the Holy Spirit. So again now, the fulfillment. Does Nicodemus know what John was preaching? Sure, he's part of the Sanhedrin. The official delegation was sent out. So he knows all that. So Jesus is now saying, I say to thee, unless a man be born again of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now again, just as we saw in the prologue, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. It is spirit. So he's talking here about baptism. And the same problem you had when the Jews were getting baptized by John, what's being replaced now? Unless you're born again of water and the spirit. He's, putting, he's banking everything on the fact that he's born what? Nicodemus is born what? What is he? He is a Jew, Jew of the Jews. So he doesn't need to be born again because he is... Jewish, he's circumcised, he's part of the people of the covenant. What Jesus is saying is sort of what John was saying. It's not enough. You want the Messiah, you want to get into the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. Stone jars are put away, right? Temple is put away. Now what else is being put away? Birth in the Jewish people. It's not enough to say that you have Abraham for your father. It's not enough. You have to be born again of water and the Holy Spirit. Do not wonder that I said to thee, you must be born again. Then he uses an example from nature. The wind blows where it will, and thou hearest its sound, but dost not know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Do you see how Jesus is really stretching him? He's got to go beyond the limits of the Old Covenant, beyond just his Jewish conception of what salvation and the kingdom is. So he uses the example of the wind. The problem with the wind is, can you see it? No, but is it real? Yes, and you know it's real because you can see its effects, right? 
You can't see the Holy Spirit in the water at that baptismal font. But does that mean that the effect is not real? Just because you can't see it. Most of the great things we have in our life you can't see. Can you see love? You can't see love. But is love real? Yeah. So the same thing. Just because you can't see Jesus, you know, in the host, doesn't mean that he's not really there. I had a dear friend of mine, Father John Heisler, tell me a story happened in his parish where uh, this woman had a, a little boy, wonderful little boy, sweet little boy, but the boy was blind, couldn't see anything. So after Mass, took the boy up to Father and said, Father, would you let him, and explain to him, or let him just sort of like touch and handle the host? And Father said, well, why do you want to do that? And he says, well, because when you're up there and you say the body of Christ, he really thinks that Jesus is up there on the altar. <laughs> All right. Sometimes those who can't see physically can see. All right. Anyway, so back to this. Nicodemus is puzzled. He wants to understand. He wants to change, but he doesn't think he really can. Do I really born again? Can I do I really have to go back to my mom and be born again in that way? So he says, how can these things be? And then answering him, Jesus said, thou art a teacher in Israel and dost not know these things. Because he's a member of the Sanhedrin, he's a Pharisee. He should know that rebirth is going to be required in the Messianic times. So Christ is challenging him to bring him more deeply, just the way he's challenging us to go more deeply into his word. He says, Amen, amen, I say to thee, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, and our witness you do not receive. Now the we there are Christians. Jesus associating himself with his disciples in the Christian church when he says, we speak of what we know, what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, and our witness you do not receive. If I have spoken of earthly things to you and you do not believe, how will you believe if I speak to you of heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven except him who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man, that's his favorite term for himself, the Son of Man who is in heaven. Even though Jesus is physically present in front of Nicodemus on earth, he is also where? He's in the bosom of the Father in heaven. Huge revelation, huge revelation. So how do you help Nicodemus do it? Nicodemus is a Jew, so we're going to go to the Old Testament, right? And that's exactly what Jesus does. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that those who believe in him may not perish, but may have life everlasting. Not just a future life, but an eternal life, a life that will not end. Now you think back when Moses lifted the serpent up and stuck it in the tree. The Jews had been disobedient, they had been rebellious, and a bunch of serpents were sent in that bit them. Do you remember all this? So you put the bronze serpent up in the tree, and anyone who looks at the bronze serpent with faith, they'll be healed from their snake bite. Now, I know snake, always think of the devil, the serpent. Okay, so sin, all right? So we got the same thing kind of going on. He's telling him something very important, looking to the future of what's going to happen. When is the Son of Man going to be lifted up? On the cross, on the cross. As a matter of fact, there is a three-rung ladder of lifting up. Jesus is lifted up for the first moment on the cross. 
He's lifted up again at the resurrection and then finally at the ascension when he goes to his glory. But it's interesting, it's the hour, it's the passion that is the moment of his glorification. We're not going to get there, but if you jump to chapter 13, you go to the Last Supper, Judas goes out from the supper rejecting what Christ has just offered, the bread of life, the gift of himself, his sacrificial death. And what does he say? Now is the Son of Man glorified. Now! His glorification begins as soon as he's lifted up. When I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And that begins to happen right away, right? There's the good thief. Right, Luke? Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Kingdom? The guy shredded in purple rags. He's bleeding to death, can hardly take his breath. And the good thief already says, this man has done nothing wrong. And then you have a Roman, a Gentile, seeing the manner of his death, said, truly, this man was the son of God. When I'm lifted up from the earth, I draw all things to myself. When he's lifted up, he looks like a serpent, doesn't he? He looks like a common criminal. That's the way criminals went. Crucifixion, Cicero tells us, the most horrid form of death imaginable. It was invented by the Persians. The Romans like it and brought it into their empire. Horrible form of death. That's why it's, it's such a scandal. I remember they found some graffiti at the base of the Palatine Hill where they drew a crucified man but put a jackass on his head. And a little bit of greed of it. Minucius worships a jackass for a god. That he of worshiping a god who was crucified. We forget sometimes what a scandal the cross is. And Nicodemus is not going to get it unless Jesus begins to reveal this right now. It's almost like it was a form of public execution. As if for our symbol for our faith, we had an electric chair. And then we all say, ugh, gross. Or death by lethal injection. You had a hypodermic needle for your symbol, for your faith. I mean, the cross was a scandal. It was horrible. It was horrifying. They didn't want that. Now, of course, there's no poison in a serpent of bronze. Even though it looks evil, it's not evil. So Jesus is lift up. He looks like a criminal, but there's no poison of sin in him. And anyone who looks on him with faith when he's lifted up, what will they be healed of? Sin. Snake bite. So when the Son of Man is lifted up. And then you get the beautiful, beautiful passage which now I always associate with Tim Tebow, but anyway, <laughs> it's all right. For, <laughs> oh, come on. What the? I'm a 49ers guy. I can say that. Anyway, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that those who believe in him may not perish, but may have life everlasting. For God did not send his son into the world in order to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So he doesn't come to condemn. He comes to save. That's what his name indicates. And that's why the beauty and the power of the cross. And we forget this sometimes. I had a priest friend who was a missionary over in Africa. And he kept inviting some of the local tribesmen to come in. And they hesitated. And one day he was celebrating Mass. And they actually entered into the Catholic Church. He was so excited. They stayed for about five minutes and then walked away stepped outside. And then after Mass was over, he came and said, oh, thank you for coming. Why didn't you stay? And they said, well, there's that man up there. He said, what do you mean? Well, 
you have that man and he's, he's, on, he's on this cross. And they were very disturbed by it. And he says, oh, you mean the crucifix? A God who is crucified. And you know, one thing we know about this life, it is a veil of tears. I mean, sometimes we can escape that for short. God gives us great joys and great happiness, but ultimately it is a veil of tears. That's why the cross is always where we want to be at the end, with the consolation of a God who loves us so much that he's willing to be crucified for us. So a powerful message. Now let's skip up a little bit to verse 25, because John's going to come in and give another witness here. This is John the baptizer. Look at verse 25. Now there arose a discussion about purification between some of John's disciples and the Jews. So John and the Jews are going at it now. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with thee beyond the Jordan to whom thou hast borne witness. So they all acknowledged that John was pointing to Jesus. Yes, they recognized that he was pointing to Jesus. Behold, he baptizes and all are coming to him. John answered and said, No one can receive anything unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but have been sent before him. Now notice the imagery he uses here. So beautiful. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices exceedingly at the voice of the bridegroom. This, my joy, therefore, is made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. St. John, what an incredible man. That's why I say God sends a great man to reveal someone who's more than a man. That's Jesus, all right? He must increase, I must decrease. Now notice the imagery again of a wedding. See how the wedding's coming on here? So important. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. All throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh's the bridegroom. Who's the bride? Israel. So now he recognizes God's son is here. These are nuptials. That's why you had the wedding feast at Cana for the first sign, because it's a wedding. Now, in the Jewish weddings, it's very significant. The guy who we call the best man, the tradition was that he would go and he would stand guard outside the bride's home to make sure no one went in there until the groom came. You know, we still have that little tradition. It's sort of superstitious that if the, the bride is out in her wedding gown, no one's supposed to see the bride. You know, it's sort of hidden, you know, and you have the bridesmaid come in, and then she finally comes in, but when the groom can see, all right. Well, the best man would sort of stand guard. Then the wedding procession would come. The groom with all of his friends singing and dancing, they would come to the home to take the bride, and once that happens, the best man's job is done. He's guarded. He stood guard. He now steps aside. Does that make sense? So that's what John's saying. That's what he's saying. The bridegroom has the bride. He says, I'm not the groom. I'm the best man. And now that the bridegroom is with the bride, I just rejoice. This is my joy. It's made full. I'm so happy. I've done my job. Why? Because everyone's going after him. See, there's no ego. He's been very powerful, very influential. But once Jesus comes, I've done my job. He must increase. I must decrease. And that's the story in every one of our spiritual lives, right? That's the whole challenge. He must increase. I must decrease. But that's part of the Christian paradox. The more Christ increases in us, the more we really are ourselves, right? 
and says, I love Jesus, but I got to be me. I got to do my thing and all that. The irony of it all, yeah, my way, the theme song of hell, you know. <laughs> yes, it was my, I like Sinatra, but you know what I'm saying. My way, you know. Yes, it was my way, my way, my way. Well, that's what you want. You can have it for all eternity. It can be your way forever. <laughs> this really shows the beauty of St. John and how he continues to communicate the power and the witness of Jesus. Let us go on then to chapter 4, because we're going to keep going on with this same type of theme. We have replacement of the birth in the chosen people, replacement of the temple, right? And then replacement of the sterification, localization for God and for worship. And all of these things just keep going on and on. And Jesus is bringing about something new. Behold, (laughs) I make all things new. And that's what he's doing, fulfilling completing, perfecting. Let's go on now. This is a fascinating thing. When therefore Jesus knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. It's not sacramental baptism. It's the baptism of John. It's a baptism of repentance. He left Judea and went again into Galilee. Now he had to pass through Samaria, because Judea is down in the south, Samaria is in the middle, Galilee is up in the north, so he's going through Samaria. He came accordingly to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting at the well. It was about the sixth hour. Sixth hour of the day, that's 12 noon. Gary Cooper, all right? High noon. That's what we're talking about here. It's hot. It's dusty. Now, John clearly knows Jesus is God, but he's also telling us very clearly what about Jesus here. He's been walking all day. He's human. He's tired. He's sitting at the well. That well is still there to this day. It is still functioning. You can go sit on that well if you want and contemplate this incredible conversation, which I'm sure John records just the rudimentary facts of that conversation, but we can be sure it was a very deep conversation indeed. Now, Jacob's well was there, all right? There came a Samaritan woman to draw water. Now, we immediately have a problem, Houston, because women draw water early in the morning or late at the evening. You don't draw water at high noon. That's the peak heat of the day which indicates that this woman probably was maybe ostracized a little bit, maybe not keeping the best company, maybe not the best reputation in town. Maybe she slept in. (laughs) Maybe she had a reason to sleep in. Okay, anyway, let's keep moving on. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, worried. Okay, the Samaritan woman comes. Jesus said to her, give me to drink. A very simple, beautiful request for an act of charity. Give me to drink. For his disciples had gone away in the town to buy food. Now, all sorts of weird things are already there right in that expression when he says, The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, How is it thou, although art a Jew, dost ask drink of me, who am a Samaritan woman? For, and John shows that he's not just writing for Jews, he's writing for everyone, because he adds, For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jews hated the Samaritans hated them. They were considered half-breeds, hated them. They were impure, unclean, a bunch of magicians, corrupt. They only accepted the first five books of the Bible. They did not accept any of the prophets. They also did not accept worship in Jerusalem. They had their own temple on Mount Gezerim where they worshiped, which the Jews about a hundred years before this incident took place destroyed their temple. 
When the Jews lost their own temple and eventually came back after the Babylonian captivity, the Samaritans came up and said, would you like us to help you rebuild your temple? You know what they said to them? Get lost. We want nothing to do with you. Now, why is this important? Whenever you start hearing people, you know, say, oh, Jesus had a limited first century mentality. Negative. He is shattering through so many cultural biases. Oh, if he had lived now, he would have ordained women. Come on. Come on. He would have made his mother priest. But look at all the things. First of all, you never talk to Samaritans. Never talk to Samaritans. So there's one barrier, Jew-Samaritan. Shatter that barrier. You would never speak to a woman in public in this situation. It was considered inappropriate. And yet he speaks to her. Very open to her. Furthermore, if you're using Samaritan water jars, though to get the water out of the well, that would be unclean, ritually unpure. But he doesn't care. So all of these things... So you have saint, sinner, Jew, Samaritan, male, female, clean, unclean. All of this stuff is being shattered and washed away. That's why St. Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. All are one in Christ. But he's teaching so gently with just such a few months. Give me to drink. What a beautiful reach out. And then she immediately goes with all of her baggage. How are you, a Jew, asking me, a Samaritan? Jesus answered and said to her, If thou didst know the gift of God, and who it is who says to thee, Give me to drink, thou perhaps would have asked him, and he would have given thee living water. Now, living water means flowing, running, gurgling, babbling, not just still water in a well, but flowing abundant water. In the Middle East, that's a premium. Right? Living water on a natural level would have been incredible. Now, the woman, again, kind of like the same reaction of Nicodemus. Do I crawl back into my mother's womb again? Come on. All right. So she says, the woman said, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. And whence hast thou living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself and his sons and his flocks? Now, that's, a, that's an insulting thing to say. And it's giving a theological argument because she's calling who her father? Jacob. She's being really (laughs) obnoxious. She's a woman with an attitude. Are you greater than Jacob? Our, Our father Jacob, who gave us this well. Not you guys. So hitting on all these things. In answer, Jesus said to her, notice he doesn't, no polemics. Let's go personal. No polemics. Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. He, however, who drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him shall become in him a fountain of water springing up to life everlasting. Water in John's gospel is always an image of the Holy Spirit, the life of grace, living water, born again, water and the Spirit. The woman said to him, now notice, guard's kind of down a little bit. Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst or come here to draw. Jesus said to her, okay, we got to go deeper, (laughs) okay? Go call thy husband and come here. The woman answered and said, probably with some shame, I have no husband. I have no husband. Now it's turning into the sacrament of reconciliation. (laughs) I have no husband. 
Jesus said to her, Thou hast said, Well, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In this thou hast spoken truly. Oh, my gosh. you imagine? We're talking about reading the soul now. Might have known naturally that there was a problem. Say, you've had five, and the guy you're with now, that's not your husband. Going very, very deep. So she backs off immediately, kind of spooked, and says, let's have a theological discussion. And that's, you know, sometimes when people get a little too close, let's go, let's talk theology, you know. Let's not talk action. Let's not talk about changing our lives or making a commitment. So she says, sir, I see that thou art a prophet. Why does she call him a prophet? Because he has supernatural knowledge. He can read the soul. He knows her life. He knows her strengths, her weaknesses. He knows the most intimate details. We're just getting the skeleton of the conversation that's communicating. This conversation probably went on for a long time because later on when she goes back to the townspeople, she says, I met a man who told everything about me. Everything. So this was a prolonged conversation. John giving us the highlights here. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that at Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. All right, let's have a little discussion. Samaritan or Jew, who's right? Jesus said to her, woman, form of polite address, believe me, the hour is coming. Now, you know the hour, my hour, the hour always refers in John's gospel to what? His passion, his suffering, okay? Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. One of the few times in the Gospel where that reference to the Jews is a very positive thing. Salvation is from the Jews. That's where the Messiah is coming. That's where the prophet is coming from. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers not just Jews, not just Samaritans. Who's he talking about? Who are the true worshipers? Christians. Okay, those who are following him. Those who are born again of water and the Holy Spirit will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father also seeks such to worship him. God is spirit, and they who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Then we gear up now for a great revelation. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak with thee am he. John Paul made this great point. I always am amused when people say, oh, the church is anti-feminine, anti-women. I taught world religions for almost 10 years. All right. There is no other religion that has put women in such an elevated position as Christianity. There's not a single woman in the New Testament, as John Paul observes, who encounters Jesus, who Jesus doesn't love and treat with phenomenal dignity and respect. Think about it. Every single woman. Guys don't get off that good. <laughs> no, but it's really true. Think of every woman that Jesus encounters. Even Pilate's wife in John's have nothing to do with that just man, that righteous man. I suffered greatly because of him in a dream today. wonder what that dream was. That's another talk. So, beautiful, beautiful moment. Now we know that the Samaritans come out, so she leaves her bucket and runs into the town, just like the apostles leave their nets and follow him and start their mission. She leaves the bucket, goes in the town, and the woman who before was using her charms to allure men and lead them into sin, five husbands and another guy, 
now goes into the town, proclaims Christ. And what is she doing? Not leading them to sin, leading them to the light, leading to the source of the living water. And at the end, they come out at the, you'll see the reaction after they spend time with him in verse 42. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe because of what thou hast said, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is in truth, the savior of the world, Samaria. And when you go to Acts of the Apostles, it's very interesting. The first place to be successfully evangelized, converted to Christianity like that, Samaria. So much so they had sent Peter and John. Remember that? To confer the sacrament of confirmation. Jesus is already reaching out to people who aren't Jewish and communicating with them. So already the Catholicity of the church is being manifested here. The only other thing I would point out to you that's sort of interesting, right after that, you look at verse 43, it says, Now after two days he departed from that place and went into Galilee. And then in 46 it says, He came again therefore to Cana. Now I'm kind of a numbers guy, so I said after two days he left that place. Then he comes again to Cana. That would probably make it again the third day. So we're at Cana again on the third day. And we had purification and all this talk, and this is when he heals the royal official's son. Remember that? Some commentators think it's the centurion royal official, but what's significant, it's a royal official. It's probably a Gentile. Now think what's going on here. We've had these special individuals been introduced into John's account. The first one, individual who comes and talks, I'm not talking about the apostles now. The first official person who comes is Nicodemus, right? An archon. Member of the Sanhedrin, Jew of the Jews. The next person to meet him is a Samaritan, half Jew, half Gentile. Now <laughs> we get a royal official who's probably a Gentile. See what's moving? Jew, Samaritan, Gentile. We're moving out. His love is all embracing. It's going to continue to go out. And then you have promises of living water, born again and of the miracle of this young, young boy being restored once again uh, to life. Let's go ahead and move on to chapter 5. Are we okay with this? Okay, let's take a look at chapter 5. We're making progress. We get to 6. Wow, Jesus may come. All right, anyway, <laughs> it's 2012. <laughs> We're supposed to hope he comes, right? You know that, right? Maranatha was to pray daily. Come, Lord Jesus. It's fine with me. Anytime he wants to come down and take over, that'd be really great. Let's go to chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. We have another feast. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So again, up to Jerusalem again. And that's one of the reasons why the gospel is different. Remember, the synoptics all focus upon parables out in the countryside among the simple folk of Galilee. Almost all of John is taking place in Jerusalem with a very sophisticated audience of people, scribes, Pharisees, people very learned in the law. Now there is at Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool called in Hebrew Bethsaida, having five porticos. Now it's very interesting if you read scripture commentaries going back to the 19th, 18th century, they say, well, this is just a metaphor, this is not really historical you know, because we know where the sheep gate is and there's no pool there. And how can a pool have five porticos? We'd have four, not five. So it, it must be some spiritual thing. Well, guess what we found? We didn't dig deep enough. If you go to Jerusalem now to the sheep gate, they dug down about three other levels. And guess what they found? 
Apul, two bodies of water, two bodies of water. And there was a portico around one side, the other side, the other side, the other side. And where the two waters met, there was another portico. Guess how many porticos there were? Five. Well, I guess it was real. All right, here we go. Here we go. If you go to the Church of St. Anne, you can look down. They'll take you. They'll give you a tour. All right, you can walk around the porticos and the ruins of the pools. It's right there. In these were lying a great multitude of the sick, blind, lame, and those with shriveled limbs, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord used to come down at certain times to the pool, and the water was troubled. And the first to go down into the pool after the troubling of the water was cured of whatever infirmity he had. Now, we don't know whether it's superstition or what, but, okay, there'd be some movement of the water. Now, this is one of the few times where the person is not asking to be cured. This guy's not asking to be cured. Now, the fact that he's there indicates that he wants to be, probably. But he doesn't ask. Jesus is the one who initiates this. Now, a certain man was there who had been 38 years under his infirmity, which means what? This guy probably became a Christian, and John probably talked with him afterwards. How do you know he was there for 38 years? 38 years under his infirmity. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been in this state a long time, he said to him, Dost thou want to get well? Isn't that beautiful? He sees suffering. He sees pain. His heart is moved. He goes up and asks, Dost thou want to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred, for I am coming in another steps down before me. I have no one to put me in where? In the water. What kind of water? Moving water. Flowing water? Yeah, okay. Does he need to get in the pool? No, because what's standing right next to him? The fountain of living water, the source of living water, the one who can give the real healing that he needs. And so that's what's going on here. So Jesus said to him, rise, take up thy pallet and walk. And at once the man was cured, and he took up his pallet and began to walk. Now, that day was the Sabbath. Now, there's 38 things you're not supposed to carry and lift on the Sabbath. I don't know why I haven't done all the studying as to why that is. Guess what one of you think you're not supposed to pick up? Your pallet. You don't carry your bedding on the Sabbath. So we're in Jerusalem. At the sheep gate, he says, rise, pick up your pallet. So he's picking up his pallet, walking around. This is the Sabbath. It's screaming. Okay. What are you doing? Stop. You're not supposed to do that. But Jesus wants this to be done. And so therefore the Jews said to him who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, they're not allowed to take up thy pallet. He answered them, he who made me well said, take up thy pallet and walk. They asked him then, who is the man who said to thee, take up thy pallet and walk? But the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had quietly gone away since there was a crowd in the place. It's a feast day, obviously lots of people. Afterwards, Jesus found him, this is the second time, in the temple. So he was obviously in the temple praying and said to him, Behold, thou art cured. Sin no more, lest something worse befall thee. All right. So the main reason for the working of the cure is that the man would turn to faith, turn to God, and sin no more. Because the deepest problem is not a physical malady. The deepest problem always is our soul. It's sin, right? That's the biggest problem that we have. 
All right. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Now, that might have been an innocent thing where he went back to say, it's Jesus, the great one. He's the one who did it. Aren't you happy to know this? But of course, they're not happy. Here you have a man for 38 years has been suffering horribly. A miracle has been worked, but there's no rejoicing. See, this is the constriction of heart that drives him crazy. That drives him crazy. Like even the story about the man with the withered hand in the synagogue. Remember that I had a fa- oh, great homily. Father William Fitzgerald, one of our chaplains out at Christendom. Wonderful man. He's back at St. Michael's now. But uh, he was in a horrible car crash. I don't know if I told you this story before, but he was in a horrible car crash where the lining in the car, he was knocked unconscious and caught fire, and it burned most of his hand, like he lost most of his hands. He can still say mass, but it's, it's very difficult. And he taught, remember, going into rehab in the hospital, and there were all sorts of people with horrible injuries to the hand, and they're teaching him how to do this. And Father just read that gospel passage, you know, and he says, is it okay to heal on the Sabbath? someone with a withered hand, and they hold their silence. And then Father just sort of broke down at the pulpit. He said, how could anyone, knowing that a man has lost the use of his hand and that could be given back to him, not want that to happen? So you can't cure on the Sabbath, but it's okay on the Sabbath to go out and plot to kill somebody. But, but that's the hardness of the heart. That's why he's grieved by this, that they don't really want to see what's going on. Now, John wants to make this clear why Jesus worked the miracle and what's going on here. And this is why the Jews kept persecuting Jesus, because he did such things on the Sabbath. Jesus, however, answered and said, now notice again the language. This is very explicit Christology. My father works even until now, and I work. Okay, he's putting himself on the same level as the father, equal to the father. This, then, is why the Jews were more anxious to put him to death, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also called God his own father, making himself equal to God. You know, Jesus isn't some wimp who doesn't know who he is and is dying on the cross, kind of like, oh, why did I do this? Why am I here? From age 12, right? That's why Luke preserves that for us in the temple. Did you not know I must be about my father's business? He knows, all right? And so he's communicating this again. In answer, therefore, Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever he does, this the Son does also in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself does. And greater works than these he will show him that you may wonder. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he will." For neither does the Father judge any man, but all judgment he has given to the Son. Honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. The same honor, the same worship, the same glory. And that's because he is, as we say in our creed, consubstantial with the Father. Does that make sense to everybody? All right, let's end with a glory be. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end, amen. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you very much for coming. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. O'Donnell.
Dr. O'Donnell, you mentioned earlier a something about water and blood, and then of course when Christ's side was pierced on the cross, there was water and blood. Could you help us understand a little bit more about that concept of water and blood? Sure. What I was referring to was the fact that there would be a certain poignancy. Of course, Christ, as he's getting ready to enter into his passion, knew fully all the things that were going to happen. And one of the great things that John records is the fact that when Jesus' side was opened, you know, it must have been a very large blow. We know that because when uh, he appears to Thomas, he says, put your finger into my hands, put your hand into the side, so it was open, and blood and water gushed forth. That's a huge mystery, indicating in many ways the fathers of the church come. It's the birth of the church which is taking place. It's the font of the sacramental life, because the water symbolizes baptism, blood symbolizes Eucharist, and the efficacy that is given to all the sacraments through the blood of Christ, because it's the blood of Christ that does that. My point was when he was walking over the brook of Kidron, with a full moon, the stream should have been swollen by the spring rains because it's Passover time. So you would have seen in the moonlight sort of blood and water flowing together, all the types, the prefigurements of all the lambs that were being sacrificed. And here's the true lamb walking off to his death, seeing that imagery and recognizing that that is about to be fulfilled. That's what I was kind of pointing at. It's a good question. Thank you. And when we get to the Book of Glory, we can talk more about that. Or maybe we'll do a Sacred Heart program sometime. Uh, going back to the temple, yes. uh, doing away with the temple. My great uh, artwork, yeah. Yeah. Why is it that when the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., that the Jews that didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah, why did they not rebuild it? Oh, uh, why did they not rebuild it? Uh, they wanted to rebuild it. They tried a couple times to rebuild it, but when it was completely destroyed in 70, the Romans leveled the city. There was another, even later rebellion, where they tried, and it was smashed again, and they called it, the, you know, built it to, the, to Jupiter. It was sort of like a capital in the east. They totally devastated the city, and they were banned from ever coming back there again. So because of that, the temple never was rebuilt. So our Lord's prophecy was literally fulfilled. There's other fascinating things that Dr. Carroll in his History of Christendom book goes into. Julian the Apostate, trying to show that Christ was not the true Messiah, actually undertook a building project and tried, it was around 360, I think, to rebuild, started to rebuild the temple. But as he started to do it, horrible earthquakes, thunderstorms, all these things, weird things in the sky. And everyone got so spooked out they just fled and it was never done. It never has been done. And this remains a real problem within Judaism because Judaism calls for the cult of animal sacrifice within orthodoxy. That's one of the reasons why they're trying to reclaim right now Jerusalem and also the Temple Mount because they believe where the temple was, you know the Wailing Wall? Okay, that's not the temple. The Wailing Wall is part of an enormous rock foundation upon which the temple was built. That was level. So when you're at the Wailing Wall, you're at a foundation wall for a platform. It's not the temple at all. That was completely destroyed. But right now where they believe the temple was, that's where the Dome of the Rock is. That's a mosque. And uh, <laughs> if anyone tries to do it, that's why when the Gulf War was on and those Scud missiles were going, a lot of people were wondering, what if a Scud hit the Dome of the Rock and that got blown up? Oh, well, now we can go back and build what always should have been. And then you might have really seen Armageddon happen. But, uh, but that's one of the reasons why it was completely leveled. The city was destroyed and they were not allowed back. 
I mean, for centuries, and then it became diversified, and then it was not a position where they were ever in position as a people. And it's a very significant thing that after the Second World War that the Jews have been gathered again, once again, into a nation in Israel. That's a very symbolic and, and significant thing for us. I'll just leave it at that. Okay? This is more or less speculative, but when the Pharisees approached Jesus after he drove all the animals out of the courtyard, mm -hmm. why wasn't he more clear, instead of saying, this temple, why didn't he say, when I pass away, I'll raise in three days, or something like that, so that all the Jews can recollect and not still think literally this temple? That's a very good question. Probably because they would not have understood, nor would they have accepted. And Jesus always does revelation gradually. It's something that's done gradually. If he was to stand right there and say, this temple is going to be completely destroyed, and my body is the new temple because God dwells, I mean, yeah, they weren't ready for that. So there's a gradual thing. Even later in John's Gospel, we're going to see next week, when he finally says, the Father and I are one, they pick up stones. They try to kill him. So this was not the point in the revelation. This is the beginning of a gradual revelation. He is asserting a claim here when he cleanses this temple, that this temple is going to pass away and the whole cult of sacrifice, these things are no longer going to be necessary. Now, the disciples understood that he was referring to his body, but they misunderstood. What he's really saying is, you destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Because when you go to the trial, they're saying, this man claimed he was going to destroy the temple. He never said that. He said, you destroy this temple because it's the new temple, it's the completion, it's the fulfillment. So I think, just like you have the messianic secret in Mark, where Jesus is always saying, tell no one, tell no one, see that you say this to no one. Because there was such expectation of a political messiah and things like that, and he did not want that. He wanted them to come to recognize who he is and why he really came. So a full revelation at that point would not have been the appropriate time nor the place to do that. But it was important for his disciples, and that's why the disciples remembered this, that he said this, and they got it. And that's the most significant thing. And we have to remember, too, a lot of times we think that, oh, the Jews rejected Jesus. We have to remember that many, many Jews, many of the priests, after the resurrection, became Christian. We don't know what the percentage was, but what eventually happens is that those who embrace Christianity are put out of the synagogue. They're no longer considered Jewish. You see the point? So even if you had like 80% of the Jewish people embrace Christianity and become Christian, that has nothing to do with Judaism. Judaism defines itself in opposition to that. And that's that 20% which becomes the body of Judaism. But many, many people, many, many Jews became Christian. In some instances, majorities did. But they're no longer considered Jewish. And this remains a real problem. And we need to help our Jewish brothers and sisters see this. Just as you have things such as Spanish Catholicism, Mexican Catholicism, Irish Catholicism, there should also be a Jewish Catholicism, a way in which you are Catholic, but you don't have to give up your Jewish heritage. You still bar mitzvah, you still do Passover, but you go to Mass, and all those other things. But you would still have those cultural expressions. So many times it meant becoming Catholic means you have to stop being Jewish. That should not be the case. Should not be the case. Dr. O'Donnell, we have a, a question co coming in from Kathleen in Michigan who's asking about when did baptism become sacramental and not symbolic? Asking about the nature of the baptism that the apostles were administering. 
Well, many of the apostles, because they had been associated with St. John, Jesus, if you look at the synoptics, preaches the same message of John the Baptist. What's he going on saying? Repent and believe the good news. So the people who want to repent come and submit to this baptism by water. Sacramental baptism does not really begin until after the resurrection, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes in fire. Because it's water and fire and the Holy Spirit. 3,000 are baptized on that day. And Jesus, before the ascension, has that great line at the end of Matthew's Gospel where he says, All power in heaven and earth has been given to me. You go, therefore, and baptize all nations in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all I've commanded you, and I'm with you forever. So it's only after the font of baptism had opened up on the cross, and you have the resurrection, then with the outpouring of the Spirit, that's when the church is born. And the church is born through the sacramental wars of baptism on the day of Pentecost. Thank you very much, Dr. O'Donnell. Okay, thanks for coming. God bless. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.